let's be reminded that the things that John is dealing with and writing about and the reasons that he has to write what he does is because very, very soon after Jesus parted and went back to heaven, departed the earth and went back to heaven, there were a lot of things going on in the church. Uh, it didn't take long for Satan, if you will, to begin working against the church. And so the people that John is writing to, they're, they're a little destabilized, if you will. They're a little troubled, it's why in the letter he reminds them the spirit of the Antichrist is already here. In fact, he says, even though the Antichrist hasn't yet come, he says there are many Antichrists who have already come. And he says, don't be troubled by all the people who are leaving your fellowship. Because he said they were never really of us. If they had been of us, they would have remained with us. And we're going to look at that passage in, in particular in a couple weeks, but... These, these folks needed to be reassured. And that's what verses 12, 13, and 14 of 1 John chapter 2 are all about. It is the Apostle John's reassurance to these folks here to, to remind them of things that, that would encourage them, would strengthen them, would build them up, if you will. And what this reminds us of is this. No matter where we are in our walk with God, no matter how short of a time we've been a Christian, and no matter how long we've been a Christian, how mature or unmature or immature we are, all of us need reassurance at times in our life. And, and one of the things that John is doing here in these three verses is for the very first time in his letter, he's sort of addressing different groups, if you will, within the church uh, by using certain terminology. He'll talk to fathers, and he addresses them as fathers because he wants to talk to those who are mature. Then he says, I, I want to talk to young men. And I think when he talks to young men, he's talking to the maturing ones. There's a time where he talks to children, and he's using a term there that speaks about those who are young in the faith. But initially here in verse 12, he uses a different term for little children here. When he starts out, he says, I'm writing to you little children. And I think when John is using this word, he's speaking to everyone in the congregation, everyone in the church. Uh, because John uses this term over and over again in this letter, and it's not to a particular group, it's to the entire body, it's to, it's to everybody. You see that over in verse 18 of chapter 2. He says, children. In chapter 2, verse 1, my little children. Uh, over in verse 28 of chapter 2, and now little children. Then over in chapter 3, verse 7, little children. Uh, down in verse 18 of chapter 3, little children. So he uses this term throughout his letter. And again, this is not referring to a specific group. This is referring to, to everyone, every Christian that is there. And so he wants to encourage everyone there as he starts out these three verses. And he says, I am writing to you. Why is it important that John write this down? For the same reason why God wanted his word written down. So that it could be continually referenced. When you and I write, when we have something written down, it's something that we can always go back and continuously refer to. 
It's why it's good that we write things down, because if we don't, sometimes we forget them. They escape. We, we don't. They don't bring them to to the to our focus, to the forefront, to be able to notice them. And and John uh, wanted to write these things so that these folks who would receive this letter would be able to go back over and over and over again and reference it, so that they could be reminded of these things. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit. And so John says, I'm writing to you little children. Now, this word in the Greek language has two sides of meaning. One is it conveys that you are deeply loved. And that's one of the things that John, when he writes this letter, and he refers to these recipients as little children throughout, this word means you are deeply loved. I think deeply loved by God and deeply loved by John the Apostle. God wants you to know tonight, as Nicole has just been talking about, we've been saying, God deeply loves you, and so should your brothers and sisters in Christ. You should know that you are deeply loved. It's one of the things that should bring reassurance into our lives and stabilize us when our lives can can get a little, you know, shaky, as these folks' lives were getting shaky. But the other shade of meaning of this term speaks about those who are students. Those, in a sense, who are disciples, who are in training, if you will. Uh, It was a term that teachers used of their students as how they would address them as technia, little children. Those of you, in a sense, who are in my class, if you're a teacher. And what this reminds us of also, then, is this. Again, it doesn't matter how long we've walked with Christ, how mature we are, how much of the Bible we know, how much experience we've had in Christian ministry or whatever, all of us should still look at ourselves as little children. That there are still things we need to learn. That there are still areas where we need to grow. That none of us, no matter how long we are alive and how much we have, again, walked with God... Do we ever get to a place where we stop growing, where we stop maturing, where we stop, you know, acknowledging that there are areas of our lives that we need to to shore up and need to let God help us with and support us so that we can, you know, see see some of those areas improved. We need to always be teachable. We need to be pliable. We we need to uh, be compliant. You see, humble. And that's all conveyed in the term little children. If it is true that he's using this term to refer to everyone, then a couple things there. You are deeply loved, and we are all, in in a sense, students in training. And with that in mind, John wants to go back and begin to share with them also some things that he hopes will reassure them and in a sense reestablish them, or even, I like to even think of it, retrofit them to make them even more solid, more stable. And the very first thing John starts out with is this. I'm writing to you little children that your sins have been forgiven. Now notice something here. How can John be so sure that other people's sins are forgiven? 
because John knows these people and John is basing this confidence in their sins being forgiven not on their performance but on their position in Christ. That's why. Let's talk about sins being forgiven. The word forgiven here means to be sent away, to be laid aside, to be released, to let go of. We've talked about this before in our study of 1 John. It's illustrated in the Old Testament by the scapegoat that would have all, in a sense, the sins of the people placed on them and then would be chased away from the, from the, uh, from the people and sent out into the wilderness. And there would be obviously then this goat that would be sent away to illustrate that God wants to take away the sins. He he wants to send them away. He wants to release them and let them go. And John is saying to his recipients of this letter and to all Christians, you should be reassured every day and you should wake up every day if for no other thing to realize my sins have been forgiven. I don't have to carry the weight and the burden and the guilt of my sin. My sin has been released through Jesus Christ. You see. He doesn't doesn't say they will be. He says they have been forgiven. You see. And that's a great thing for us to remember. You know, every day you and I then could wake up rejoicing because every day we wake up knowing our sins are forgiven. And John goes on to remind them, again, this isn't performance. This is position because he says, you have been forgiven because of His name. Not through anything that we've done, Not through anything that we could do. That's why you and I can't work for salvation. We can't merit God's forgiveness. John is reminding all of us, it is through or on account of the name of Jesus. It is His character. It is His authority that grants us forgiveness. And and the Bible tells us, Jesus Himself said, I have all authority. Therefore, if I want to forgive sins, I can do it. Isn't that one of the things that rustled the religious leaders in Jesus' day? Remember, he was going around saying, your sins are forgiven, and the religious leaders were appalled. How can you forgive sins? How can you have the authority to forgive sins? Well, obviously, I'm God. That's why, because I have the authority to say to someone, your sins are forgiven. And isn't it great to know that God has proclaimed over us that our sins have been forgiven? I hope you know that tonight. I hope you can go to bed tonight knowing, little child, your sins have been let go through Him and because of His name. You see. And that was an important thing for us all. It's important. You know, again... Many of these folks that John is writing to, they're mature Christians. 
But it never hurts for us to be reminded of the basics that sometimes we sort of let go and forget about because it is these very basic things that really provide the foundation that we need that when things come into our life and like they were dealing with, people were leaving the church and leaving their fellowship and and John saying, antichrists are among you and they've infiltrated the church and, and this was troubling to them. But he's saying, look, don't let this stuff trouble you. Be solid in who you are. Know who you are in Jesus Christ. And one thing that you and I can always be sure of is that our sins have been forgiven because of His name. Because of His name. Then in verse 13, He says, I'm writing to you fathers, you mature ones, that you have known Him who has been from the beginning. couple things. John is saying to us how we can be mature when he uses the word no. John says, you are mature because you have known Him. Notice that John is saying, There's really no secret formula here. It's all about a personal relationship with God. It's about knowing God. And the word that John uses here for know speaks about a personal, experiential, thorough knowledge of one that is gained by experience. It's about getting better acquainted with someone. And in this case, it's about getting better better acquainted with God on a personal level. And John is basically saying, you know Him. You know what God's like because you have followed Him since the beginning of His self-revelation when He came to earth in the form of Jesus Christ. You know Him. It's just like us. You know, if, if we truly know somebody, I mean, we've spent time with them. We've We've heard their heart. We know where they're coming from and all that. We, we know them personally, thoroughly, experientially. There's a relationship there. Then there's, there's a confidence, there's a surety because we know that person, you see. And John is saying that same kind of, again, reassurance and confidence comes into our life simply by walking every day, seeking to, if you will, get better acquainted with God. To know Him more and more and more in our relationship with Him. And John is saying, that's how you became, in a sense, a father. That's how you became mature ones. It wasn't any kind of, you know, again, uh, magical formula. It was just every day spending time with God and getting to know Him. And John is saying, if you know him, then that should bring you reassurance, you see. It's just like us today. If, if, we, if we are in a place in our life where our faith is shaken like theirs was, and, and there are times in our life where all of our faith gets shaken, we've got to go back to what we know about God. Do we, if, if we really know God, and we know who he is, then that can begin to solidify our lives. Now, one other thing I want to say here before I forget it, because I probably won't remember this later on, even though it would be more appropriate to say later on. 
Though John is, a, is, is addressing different sort of groups, I think there's also a group that he's not directly addressing, but he has a message for. And that is the group that is not making progress in their spiritual life. And they're not growing. Because one of the sort of maybe subtle things that John is saying in these three verses here in 1 John 2 is that, again, we should never stop growing. That there is always a necessity in our life to keep making progress in our walk with God. Because, again, we never get to a point, even as mature ones, where we know everything about God. There's always more to know about God. He's an infinite being. So we never exhaust knowing Him. Our lives, though, should be spent like Paul, where he says, my one aim to the Philippians is that I might know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death, Philippians chapter 2. Paul, for Paul, that was all it was about, knowing God. By the way, if you've never read this classic, uh, I would encourage you sometime in your Christian life to read J.I. Packer's classic book called Knowing God. It is, to me, it's a book every Christian at some point in their Christian life should read. It has been a classic uh, for, for years, since I can remember. Um, just a great book, Knowing God by J.I. Packer. Maybe the best book that's ever been written on know, knowing God. So then he goes on to say in verse 13, I'm writing to you young people, you maturing ones. Maybe, maybe I couldn't classify you as mature, but you are maturing. Okay? And notice what he says to them. I'm writing to you, young people, that you have conquered the evil one. You have prevailed. You have overcome. You have been victorious over the evil one. And who's the evil one? Well, according to Jesus, it's the devil. Jesus was actually the first one that referred to the devil as the evil one. So John would have been there to hear it. In John chapter 17, verse 5, when Jesus is praying to the Father, he prays, Father, I pray that you would not take my followers out of the world, but that you would keep them from the evil one. Speaking of the devil. That was the prayer of Jesus. And so John is saying to these maturing ones, you should be reassured. You, 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 should, you should go back to, to remember. You've been victorious in your life over your spiritual enemy. You've overcome. You've prevailed. Don't forget what God was able to do through you. You haven't, you know, you haven't had a life of defeat. You've had a life of, of overcoming and prevailing and being victorious. And this is what John wants to remind the maturing ones of. Life is going to be a series of battles. But as long as we keep growing and keep maturing and keep growing in our knowledge and keep remembering that our sins are forgiven, we can overcome and prevail and have victory over the devil and over every you know, evil spiritual force that comes against us. Later on in this book, we're going to look at this verse where John says, 
He says, you have overcome them. Speaking of the spirits of the Antichrist that are already in the world. John says in 1 John 4, you have overcome them. Because why? Because the one who is in you is greater than the he who's in the world. You see. John wants to reassure his readers again about who they are. They are the children of God. They have the Holy Spirit within them. They have His Word. Their sins have been forgiven. They have knowledge of God. They can have spiritual victory. It's not this elusive thing that, that is only reserved for you know, certain elite followers of God. No, it's, it's for anybody. We just have to believe who we are in God. Sometimes I think, you know, again, part of our part of being defeated and being discouraged and, and, and even, you know, losing some battles and stuff is because we forget who we are and who God calls us to be and who God makes us to be in Jesus Christ. Now, verse 14 is the verse I want to concentrate on more than the other two tonight. So that's why I wanted to save primarily the bulk of my time looking at this verse tonight. And first of all, I want you to notice that predominantly chapter four, or verse 14 is repeating most of what he's already said in verse 12 and 13. For the most part, although he's going to add some very important things, it's, it's still repeating much of the same principles. Why is that important? Because he's repeating for the sake of emphasis. And we all know that when we repeat things in our life, that's when we really grasp it. That's when we really get it. It's through practice that we get proficient. And so the Bible is always replete with all these reminders of how it's okay to be reminded. And how it's okay to be repetitious. And and to even go over the same things over and over again. Because... That's how we, they really take hold in our life. John wasn't the only one that felt that way. In fact, Peter, if you turn back real quick to 1 Peter, Peter even talks about this. I'm sorry, I said 1 Peter, it's 2 Peter. Look at 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 12. Peter even says to his readers of, of this letter that he's writing, he says, Therefore, I intend to remind you constantly of these things, even though you know them and are well established in the truth that you now have. See, Peter's saying, look, I know you know what I'm going to tell you, but I'm going to tell you anyway, and I'm going to keep telling you. And then once you hear it, I'm going to tell you again. And I'm going to keep repeating and telling and telling and telling you. Even though you're well established, I'm going to keep reminding you. Because again, we all need to be reminded. We need that repetition. Because sometimes, even though we know, it hasn't taken hold yet in our lives. And so we need... We need to keep being reminded of some of these truths in order for them finally to take hold or finally for, for it to get embedded in our life, you see. And that's what Peter's saying, and that's why John is being repetitious here. So back to chapter 2, verse 14 of 1 John. I have written to you children. Now this is a different word 
than the earlier word little children. This is the Greek word paideia instead of the word technia. And it, it's speaking about those who are younger in the faith. They're, they're not, you know, that you can't really classify them as maturing yet. They're obviously not mature yet, but they're still part of the body. They're still obviously in the faith. And he says to them, I'm writing to you children that you have known the Father. Even as a child, you're aware, you have an understanding of your Father. And he says that's so important that you understand that. And that you just keep that simple childlike faith. As Jesus even said, if you will just come to me as little children, that you would just be that trusting of me, and you would just, you know, depend upon me as a little child depends upon their parents, that there's nothing wrong with that, Jesus. We should never outgrow that, you see. There should always be that awareness and that understanding that we have of our Father. And then he says again, I have written to you fathers, because again, you have known him who has been from the beginning. Same thing he said in verse 12, but he's saying this now, notice, to mature people. But again, he's like, don't stop doing what you're doing. That's what got you to your mature state. You just kept personally, experientially, practically, continuously, you kept getting more and more acquainted with the Father every day. You built that relationship. And that's what has made you spiritually mature. But then this is where maybe the change comes. And this is why I wanted to spend the, the time we have left on the rest of verse 14. Even though he addresses young people as he's already done, notice he adds a few things here that are real key and real important. And really apply not only to young people, to the maturing ones, but also to mature ones and to the children of the faith. And that is this. He says, I'm writing to you, young people, that you are strong. Now, right now, they might not feel strong, but John is saying, you are strong. The word simply means mighty, powerful. It also means to be confident and sure. Because you think about it. If I'm, if I'm feeling strong, then that, that carries with it a confidence and a surety in my life, which is something that they were lacking. They were a little shaky of. Now again, we know though, John isn't saying you're strong in and of yourself, because we know that that would contradict the rest of Scripture. But the Bible does tell us that in our position, who we are in Christ, we are strong. Paul says, 2 Timothy, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Paul says to the Ephesians in the passage right as he's getting ready to launch into a, a thing about spiritual warfare, he says, finally, be strengthened in the Lord and be strong in Him. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. And then in the book of Ephesians chapter 1, Paul's talking to them about this power that they have. And he says, this, this power that is in you who believe, it is the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. He says, you have that power. Don't ever forget it. You are strong, he says. John wanted his readers to be reminded of how strong they are. Not in themselves, but in the Lord. 
in His grace, in His might, in His strength, in the power that is available to them because of who they are. Again, not based on performance, but their position. John says, you're strong. We might feel weak. But John says, you're strong in the Lord. Be strong. And then he goes on to say this, and I think this is also very key. Notice that John connects being strong with the Word of God. Because he says, you are strong and the Word of God resides in you. One of the best ways you and I can be strong or build up our spiritual strength is through the Word of God. The word reside here is a key word. It means that the Word of God is not to be a every once in a while visitor in our lives. The word resides means that the Word of God is to be a permanent resident in our lives. In fact, it speaks about the Word of God being settled within us always exerting its power in us. That's what the word reside means. Let me repeat that. It it speaks about the Word of God being settled within us so that it can always exert its power in us. And John is saying to these young maturing ones, you're strong. And don't forget, the Word of God resides in you. Folks, this is why at this church, We are always going to be a church that emphasizes the teaching of the Word and getting people connected to the Word and getting them into the Word because it's one of the the primary ways that God builds His strength into our lives so that we can overcome the evil one, so that we can be more stable and not shaken by the things that happen in our lives. Or the things that are happening around us. And this is what John is saying here. He says, you are strong. The word of God resides in you. And you have, again, overcome the devil. You have prevailed. You have been victorious. Because the word of God resides in you. And you're strong. You're strong. I want to take you to a couple verses tonight that again, remind us of our relationship to this Word of God that makes us strong. If you'll go to 1 Peter chapter 2, maybe this is where I was getting 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2. How can we make sure that the Word of God resides in us as a permanent resident rather than an every once in a while visitor? Well, Peter writes, Yearn. The word means to intensely crave. Does that, does that describe the way we uh, desire the Word of God? The nourishment of God? Yearn like newborn infants for pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up to salvation. The words grow up simply mean to increase. It means to experience nonstop progress or development in our spiritual lives. How do we do that? How do we grow? How do we keep progressing? 
by having that intense craving and desire for spiritual nourishment, for the Word. By the way, the word yearn not only means to intensely crave something, it also means to have great affection for. You think about it. Whether we you know, think about it or not, a baby has great affection for the milk. Great affection for the milk. And, and God is saying, oh, that my people would have that kind of affection, that craving, that desire for the milk of my word. And then if you go back to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy. And then we'll end with 2 Timothy tonight. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Paul's talking to this young pastor and he's telling him some things that he thinks uh, that he should teach his people about. And then in verse 6 of chapter 4 of 1 Timothy, Paul says this, By pointing out such things, the things that I've just talked to you about, to the brothers and sisters, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. Notice this next phrase. Having nourished yourself on the words of faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. What a, what a beautiful phrase. Having nourished yourself on the words of faith. Always being in a state of, of taking in the Word of God. And, and the Word is a beautiful picture of when we nourish ourselves on the Word, it literally forms our mind. It affects our thinking and our way of thinking. This is what the Word speaks about. We all know that even from a physical standpoint. What we eat really does come out physically in how we can operate. And if we don't eat properly, if we don't have a proper diet, they even tell us that, you know, our brain won't be sharp. That's why they tell, you know, especially people in school and, and children and stuff, you know, make sure you eat a good breakfast before you go to school because your, your mind will be sharper. You'll be able to absorb. Well, spiritually speaking, God's saying the same thing. God is saying that when you nourish yourself continually on my word, it's going to affect your thinking. It's going to affect your brain and even form the way we think. That's why it's important for us all to nourish ourselves on the words of faith. And then I love this beautiful picture. Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 16. I'll end with this verse. This verse is used to teach in theology classes about the divine origin of the Word of God. That basically the Bible was not created by men. And as we've been talking about in 1 Thessalonians, where Paul commends the Thessalonians because when they heard the Word of God or the message that came from Paul, they said, Paul said, you didn't look at it as a human message. You looked at it as God speaking to you. Why did they do that? Because they knew that the Word was inspired. It had a divine origin. It did not come from man. It came from God. And God oversaw His Word. Because if God can create the universe, then God can oversee the, the, His Word. He can give man exactly what man wants, what, what man needs. God can do that. And so, Paul says here in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, every scripture... 
There, there's not any, any part of Scripture that is excluded here. Every Scripture is inspired by God and useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the person dedicated to God may be capable and equipped for some good work? No. My Bible says every good work. In other words, Paul's saying, the Word of God, because it is inspired by God, can make a Christian absolutely capable that there is no lacking in his life if he or she will again dedicate themselves to the Word of God and be nourished in the words of faith and yearn like a newborn baby for the pure spiritual mouth. Now here's the the beautiful thing that, that I want you to see out of this tonight. The word inspired is the Greek word theopneustos. Big long word. It's the only time that this word is used in the New Testament. It's in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. And it simply means God breathed. It speaks about God's breath. Now I want you to see this tonight. If you've never seen this before, I want you to see this picture tonight. You know how many times throughout the Bible, the Bible uses running a race as, as, a, as a way of illustrating the Christian life. And, and just like any runner in a race, we need wind in order to keep running effectively. Where are we going to get that wind into our lungs as Christians to keep running effectively uh, the life that God has for us? By putting our mouth, if you will, right up to the Word of God and letting God breathe His Word into our lives. I mean, think about it. All the way back in the book of Genesis, what did the Bible say about God's creative act of Adam and Eve? God breathed into these things and they became living souls. There was nothing living about them until God breathed into them and then His his breath animated them and gave them life. And what the Bible is saying here is because the Scriptures are God's very breath, that if you and I will have a close relationship with God's Word, literally we can, we can put our mouths against God's mouth and let Him literally breathe into us His life every day through His Word. Think about even as far as like, you know, mouth to mouth. You know, when someone is needing life breath, you know, some human being has to get there and literally place their mouth on top of that and breathe air in. And, and the, the beauty here that God is saying is, my word should be your breath. That every day you and I wake up and we should yearn and crave this word so much because we understand it is our very breath. God wants to breathe into my life and reinvigorate me and energize me and animate me because I, through his word, can be strong and I can overcome the evil one and I can... I can keep knowing Him in such a way that these are the reassurances that God wants to give us. And this is why John had such a passion to write these verses to, to little children, 
to, to young children in the faith, to, to young people who were maturing, and to the fathers who had already matured, because all of us need reassurance. All of us need to be reminded who we are in Jesus Christ. We have had our sins forgiven because of His name. It's because of our position in Christ, not because of our performance. It's because who we are in God. And so tonight, I hope you will leave here yourself being encouraged and reassured and refreshed through the Word of God. Let God's Word, His breath, literally breathe into your life new life. And let's be men and women of the Word, God's breath. Let's pray. Father God, thank You for sharing with us Your very breath And God, even though at times in our life we can get weary, worn out, we can feel like quitting the race, we need, God, that second wind, if you will. God, you have reminded us tonight that that's where your word comes in. We just need to keep putting, in a sense, our face right up to your word and letting the very breath of God breathe into our lives and give us new life reinvigorate us, refresh us, revive us through that Word. God, may these folks here tonight who have faithfully come out again on a Wednesday night be reminded that they are strong, that the Word of God resides in them, that they have known You from the beginning and that their sins are forgiven, that they are deeply loved by You, God. And may these truths tonight so reassure them that, God, they will leave here even more stable and more firm and more confident and more sure of who they are in You than they have been for a while, God. And these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for being here tonight. We'll see you Sunday.